This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. And now, from the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Knowledge, advice, and insight into starting, building, and managing a small business. Here is your host, Lauren Feldman. Welcome to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm Chief Content Officer for the Oxford Center for Entrepreneurs. Thanks for joining us today. As usual, we're not going to tell you how to run your business. The show is about ideas and strategies and conversations, and we want to have those conversations with you. If there's something you've been struggling with, especially if it has anything to do with transportation or startups or raising money, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And let me emphasize, this is a safe space for business owners. If you're struggling with something, someone else listening is probably struggling with it too. In other words, there are no stupid questions. We have a special guest today with a really interesting story. Jeff Warren has raised money in Silicon Valley to build an app called Mego. It's kind of a rideshare app, but it, it lets you see all of your transportation options, um, rideshare companies, traditional taxis, electric scooters, bikes, even pub- public transit. I met Jeff recently at South by Southwest, where he participated in a pitch competition for Mego. Welcome to Mind Your Business, Jeff. Hi, Lauren. Nice to talk to you again. Great to have you on the show. Um, so, uh, so tell us, what, what exactly is Mego? Yeah, so Mego is one of the first apps out there in North America that allows you to basically what you described, find every ride option available uh, at the moment that it's important to you. So um, we combine taxis, uh, TNC or rideshare, car share, which are, you know, most uh, people in North America would know as Car2Go or maybe ReachNow. Uh, which is owned by BMW, um, scooters, e-bikes, regular bikes, docked bikes, uh, and then, of course, public transportation options. But but we've done it in a very kind of on-demand way. We're not trying to solve people's problems of planning, you know, their next big commute or their next big trip. We're really oriented towards that singular use case of, I just need to get from point A to point B right now. Show me the quickest way I'm going to get there, the cheapest way I'm going to get there, the most fun way to get there, and it's really about addressing that that in the moment problem. How, how long have you been working on this? Boy, uh, from a research perspective, um, I started in 2015. Uh, we didn't start laying down the first lines of code though until June of 2016. I launched our our first public beta after doing a number of consumer tests in in April of 2017. So we've really had it in the market now for about a year and a half, uh, but I've been working on it for a lot longer. When you say in the market, um, are you going city by city? Uh, we we actually started off in a very city by city fashion. Uh, you know, we we really come from a test and learn uh, background. Most of the leadership team here has done consumer software, either at companies like Expedia or, frankly, Uber. Um, uh, you know, into it and, and others. And these are environments that really encourage a test process. And so when we launched Mego, we launched it in Seattle and Portland. Uh, and we did that because the two cities are very differing in size, but very similar in their transportation characteristics. And so we were just kind of looking at frequency of use patterns and repeat patterns. We then added Washington, D.C., because at that time, Washington, D.C. had very different transportation options available to them. Car share was pretty much unknown in the area. There were a lot more shuttle services. 
Um, black car was far more prevalently used than, than in other parts of, of the country. Um, and we wanted to basically see if the model that we built uh, worked when we started to look at, at a different type of fragmentation, a different type of opportunity for getting from A to B. Um, and it did. Then when we closed our, our first contract with Uber uh, last January, a year ago January, um, we basically opened the floodgates and we just went out onto, uh, onto the app store, opened it up for everybody, um, stopped constraining our marketing to just those three markets and kind of let it go. Got it. I'm speaking with Jeff Warren of Mego. If you have a question about how he's building his business or uh, a question about how you're trying to build yours, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. That sounds really interesting, the way you kind of tested the... uh, uh, the app in those uh, first markets. Um, what did what, what you learn from that process? Were you surprised by anything? Yeah, we actually were. Um, we, you know, I launched Migo um, in a time when it didn't seem like a lot of consumers were paying attention to alternate forms of on-demand transportation, right? It really was kind of the Uber and Lyft show. In fact, the reason why I was doing the research in 2015 and didn't launch it until 2017 is because I was really waiting to see a signal from the market that there was enough kind of consumer viable fragmentation, a fragmentation that a consumer would actually see as useful, right, um, for them to get more out of the Mego app as a discovery platform than just by using any one of the, the singular providers, you know, by themselves. And, you know, that really, that fragmentation really began to develop as we went through 2016. And so um, after we launched the app, I think we were very pleasantly surprised uh, that people were using every form of transportation across the app um, in very healthy levels. And so no one provider has ever been more than 27% of our daily hails um, on, on Migo, which is amazing when you think about, you know, how big and well-established some of the providers and some of the categories are, uh, particularly rideshare around North America. Um, and so, I think we were hoping to see that, but I think we were really surprised at how dramatic it really was. Uh, and I was fortunate to be able to show a lot of people in the audience at South by Southwest where you and I first met, um, you know, a graph that basically outlined the, the ride activity across every mode of transportation. Um, so that was the first positive surprise. The second positive surprise was that people were actually coming back and using the product at a far higher rate than we expected. So, you know, a good consumer app, you typically expect maybe 15, 16% of your consumers to come back a month after after downloading it. We were posting numbers up in the 30s. Um, and that was really edify, uh, edifying and nice to see and, and fun, and but also kind of a surprise um, to the upside. I think the only thing that we were surprised by, um, or not so surprised by, frankly, as well, but saw... Uh, you know, as an entrenched behavior that in certain markets, particularly markets like New York uh, and San Francisco, people were really using Migo to do uh, price comparison um, and just price comparison. And, and I'm combining data that we're seeing both from the usage of the app as well as, uh, you know, talking to consumers. And it's fun to see, though, over the last year that that behavior has kind of really migrated. And it's not so much just about price comparison all of the time. It's about price comparison some of the time. A lot of the times it's about when you're going to get picked up and how reliably you're going to pick up and which brand you really, you really trust. So we're beginning to see some multiple dimensions emerge 
um, in this kind of comparative consumer behavior. It, you know, it's Migos not just about discovery; it's also about comparison, apparently. Um, and and but comparison isn't one-dimensional, and that's kind of fun to see. And it, it is uh, it wasn't what we were, I guess, always expecting. So, so tell us a little bit about um, how it works for the consumer. If, if I uh, need transportation right now, I open the app. Uh, can I just go to one screen and immediately uh, compare uh, times of arrival for Uber or Lyft, uh, what it would cost, and, and what do I have to do if I want to consider you know, public transportation or, or some other option? Yeah, so with, with one caveat, and that's one of the struggles of, of having a startup in a dynamic space, our, our contract with Uber actually expired last month, um, or this month, earlier this month. And so Uber is no longer on uh, with numbers. We're still talking to them, and our, our next meeting is, frankly, uh, a few weeks out. It's always interesting when, when some of your biggest partners are in the process of going public and, and, and dealing with a startup is uh, on the top of their priority list. Interesting. But, but outside of that, outside of that dimension, um, basically we try to get you to a map right away. So you open up Migo, you see a splash screen. What we're doing in the background is we're actually loading up uh, all the supply as soon as we have access to your geo coordinates. Of course, you have to give us your permission the first time you boot it up. Um, but if you give us your permission to to get your location while you're using the app, uh, we're basically loading supply on our, on our splash screen. So the very first thing you see is a big map. Uh, and then on the side of the screen, a bunch of tiles light up, and that shows you what, what uh, services are actually active and on Migo in your area. Um, and then as we kind of get the picture together, and this is over the course of maybe three to five seconds, um, we zoom in as tight as we possibly can on the screen to show you just the three to five services, depending on whether it's all cars or all bikes or a mix of cars and bikes. We, we have an algorithm that basically tries to tries to optimize the tightest zoom level to show you what is immediately relevant to you right then. And then on the tiles, uh, the, your relative estimated time to uh, either accessing that form of transportation by walking to it or by getting picked up uh, are showing up. And then uh, while you're looking at this map and digesting all the options, as soon as you put in your destination, those tiles also start to show you the relative price between all of those options in getting you to that destination. And so from there, you just if you, if you picked the service or you just want to know more, you tap a tile. And if you want to book, you hit book and go. Uh, and in fact, Migo is a standout, uh, even against, say, how Google Maps has looked at multimodal transportation, in that you can actually access every form of transportation on Migo within Migo. You don't actually have to download you know, 10, 15 other apps, and you're not just deep linking off into those apps. You're actually able to try them and enjoy them all from within Migo. Um, you, of course, can download partner apps for ones that you develop a, a strong affinity for and deep link directly into that app, and we preserve all the information as you go over. Um, and I will just caveat that uh, statement in that that's kind of how it works in Seattle, where we've been here the longest and have done the most development work. That's where you're based, uh, right? In, yep, in Seattle is where we're based. In other parts of the country, um, there are services where we still have to deep link you into uh, the provider app because we just haven't quite finished the process yet. And that's, that's the, both our, our biggest challenge is making sure we can include every service without you having to download the other app. But um, uh, it's also our moat because very few companies are kind of willing to do that level of work uh, to make it as seamless as it is in Migo. 
So that's a really interesting uh, facet of this. Tell us about the relationship uh, with these, um, you call, I think you call them partners, um, like Uber or Lyft or the scooters or even public transportation. Um, yep. it would, you can think it's easy to think of reasons why they might prefer to have their customers coming directly to them. How, how have they reacted to your service? Uh, so it's been generally positive and or um, mixed. I think, you know, the key point here is many of these services are brand new, right? And even if we're talking about things like Uber and Lyft where they're going public and they've been around since, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, they're still in many regards quite new. Um, and they're still in kind of customer acquisition mode. They want new customers coming to their platform and they want to build out their loyal customer segment. What's what's interesting in this space um, is that there's a phenomenon going on that tracks very closely to the travel space, which is the space that I came from. I came directly out of Expedia, where I ran mobile product for a couple of years and then ran uh, chunks of marketing for, for many years, including Expedia's relationships with Kayak and TripAdvisor and Trivago and all the MetaSearch companies that so, are out there. So you've been through right. this from the other side. From the buy side, right. Yep, exactly. So I, I, I know the buy side buy-side argument, and that is when you're out there and you're just trying to build new customers and loyal customers, you know, working with a MetaSearch partner seems a bit counterintuitive um, because here's someone who's basically saying, no, no, come to our experience, come to the experience we're providing, and yes, you can access this other service, but we're going to be kind of your first entree into into, um, mobility. And I think, you know, once if you think that way, it's very hard to build good relationships. And so a lot of the time that I spend with partners is educating them on the learnings that we had at Expedia, specifically about MetaSearch. And that were, um, look, it turns out that MetaSearch partners typically appeal to a slightly different customer segment than the type of customer segment that's coming directly to you already. And they appeal to a consumer segment that is really uh, interested in comparison shopping and is really interested in seeing the comparison, even if it's just validating their reason to go with their preferred brand, meaning, you know, to my partner, your brand. Um, and it's interesting that the data is really beginning to bear this out in transportation. So Earnest Research did a report uh, that came out in January and was picked up by Recode and, and some others. And it basically said, look, the number of people based on credit card transactions that have booked on both Uber and Lyft between 2016 and 2018 have grown from in 2016, about 21% of consumers actually booked on both Uber and Lyft on a monthly basis. And in 2018, uh, 34%, I think the number was, 34% had booked on both Uber and Lyft on a monthly basis. And so that comparison shopper segment is real. Um, and yet, and so comparisons happening, even without Mego, even without Google Maps, even without, you know, my other competitors in this particular space. Um, and so what I talked to those partners about is, Comparison shopping is a behavior that's built into, you know, a segment of consumers. And it's either going to happen and you're going to have no visibility as to why it happens and why consumers are making decisions to help you tune your service and your offering to, to appeal to that comparison shopper. Um, or we're, or you're going to have a view into it and understand it and be able to compete for the transactions that you want in that comparison segment. You're not, not necessarily no longer competing for a completely loyal customer. You're competing for their transaction, for their business, to keep your drivers happy, right, and to keep, uh, and to keep cash moving. Um, and so what we can do with our data is actually teach you how to relate to the comparison shopper. And, and to be honest, I mean, some, some companies get it right away. Some companies 
uh, don't want to think about it right now, and some companies really disbelieve. And, and so the partners that you see showing up uh, on Mego are the ones that um, either believe that we're appealing to a different segment and we're a good way of, of accessing a um, new customer, or they believe that the comparison shopper segment is real and they're better off knowing more about it and how that comparison process works than just being blind to the fact that it, that it, uh, that it happens. And so um, as I've seen this evolve in travel, and I know uh, what Kayak did for Expedia after three and a half years of us telling Kayak to kind of you know, go away, and then we finally engaged and, and figured out that it could actually greatly enhance our business, um, I'm having those same conversations in the opposite direction today, the same conversations that Kayak was having with me, <laughs> basically, uh, you know, I think about almost five years ago now, six years ago now. I'm speaking with Jeff Warren of Mobility App Mego. If you've got a question or a comment, call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. If I'm hearing you right, Jeff, it sounds like, yeah, I think I heard kind of two arguments there. Uh, one is this kind of comparison shopping is going to happen anyway, so you might as well uh, make it easy and learn from it and benefit from it in any way you can. And the other argument is I think I heard you say that you think the these meta search um, products like Mego or Kayak um, actually pull a, a different type of customer. Uh, is that right? It's, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily a different type of customer in a very universal way. It's, it's say, you know, say Lyft has built a brand, right, and Cardigo has built a brand, and a certain consumer really gravitates to that brand. Well, there's another kind of consumer out there that needs transportation, and, and yet they don't necessarily gravitate towards the brand as set up by any one of these companies. No brand has a universal appeal to absolutely everybody all the time. And yet, so Migo has a brand. And, and so if I draw a parallel between uh, Kayak and Expedia, um, what we found out with Kayak was that Kayak appealed to a more business-oriented traveler than what Expedia has as its kind of core traveler. Um, Kayak travelers traveled just slightly more frequently than Expedia travelers. And so my, my point is that Migo is appealing to a slightly different traveler that you're not getting today that doesn't attune to your brand. And yet when they're in their moment of need, they're kind of out of their pattern. They're, you know, they, they need non-demand transportation. If you're the best option, they're probably going to take it through Migo. And that's going to be a different customer profile than what you might be used to. And, and point in fact, um, you know, in our first year, we, in talking with uh, many of the TNC providers, and I'm not going to name names here, but uh, everyone expected that Migo was going to really appeal to the lowest common denominator, the, the, the customer that just wanted the best price at all costs. And so we would see a ton of business in the pooling option, right? The, and, you know, so this would be where you have to share a ride with, you know, two or three other people to get where you're going. And in fact, what we found is we were appealing to customers that were using the higher end options and a higher tier of, um, of trip, a longer trip uh, than, than anybody expected. Um, and so, you know, I, I but did they typically pick the did they typically yeah. pick the least expensive option uh, among different services for that no. longer trip? No, in fact, if, if, if you know, in fact, if you talk, if you look at our kind of top two hundred users, um, they they predominantly pick on ETA. They predominantly picked on how quickly they're going to get to either picked up or to their destination at the end. Um, and that's just an interesting dynamic that, frankly, is another thing we didn't expect. You, you, our partners didn't expect. 
you're obviously amassing a lot of interesting data here. Um, is that a part of the issue with with partners? You, you talked before about uh, the possibility that uh, in most situations, people can just go ahead and do the transaction right through Mego, regardless of whether they're signed up uh, on one of these partner services, or in some cases, they, you do have to send them to the partner service. If you do it all, if you keep the transaction, do you share the data with the partner? Yeah, so a couple things in there I want to I want to talk about. One is almost all of our partners very strongly want to have a direct relationship with any consumer using their service. And so our one of our first jobs is actually to facilitate the consumer creating an account with that particular service. So we've never, for instance, had anyone on Migo take a ride in Lyft without them creating an account with Lyft or accessing and connecting to an account they already had in place on Lyft. This is the for instance. Um, and that's very important to our partners. Like, we're not here to disintermediate them from a huge swath of consumers. We're here to actually connect them to consumers and let them try their brand for the first time without the consumer having to make the commitment of downloading, you know, yet another app when they feel like, you know, until that moment of need, they may think that all their, you know, needs are covered for transportation. And so we always create an account between the consumer and our service providers, um, in the process of them actually acquiring a ride from that provider. Uh, the second thing is almost all of these providers also want to be the merchant of record. And so they want you to get your credit card bill and say, hey, I took a ride with such and such a service. And so we facilitate that credit card transaction. We don't actually take the card swipe. Um, so we see our job as helping on the consumer side, you get the best ride for you right then in that moment, no matter where you are in the world. And, you know, the providers you know and love may not be everywhere in the world where you are at that moment in time. Um, for the providers, it's really about accessing these consumers and being able to communicate to these consumers directly uh, and build a relationship. And, and by all means, if that means that consumer then becomes one of your loyal customers, kind of, I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with that as a provider because I know something about people, and that is people travel. And there's no one service that is perfect all of the time in every market. Um, and so I think Migo always has a value proposition, even if, you know, it, uh, someone may start using one of our partner apps instead of Migo when they're in their home market, you know, most of the time. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, I, I think I, I must have misunderstood something you said earlier. What, what, what am I, what did I get wrong? Didn't you make some reference to... Um, being able to handle uh, a customer without sending them um, somewhere else? Without without them having to download of the partner's app. So think about it. You're sitting there. I see. The, so you can, somebody can sign up for Lyft um, or another service right through Mego. Is that what you were saying? Exactly. I yep, get it. Exactly. And so, you know, think you're sitting there on the side of the street. It's raining. You need a ride. Everyone's like 10, 15 minutes away. You find one option that's two minutes away. The last thing you want to do is sit there in the rain and download a 60 megabyte app. <laughs> but maybe when 5G comes along, that won't matter anymore. But like right now, like you, you just need to go. And so what we do is make it possible for you to just go. That doesn't mean we don't create an account with the, with the partner. They don't take the card swipe and you don't start to have an opportunity to build a relationship with that partner. It just means you don't have to download the 60, 70, 80 megabyte app. Uh, if you have a question or a comment for Jeff, please call us at 1-844-942-7866. Let's take a call now from Vernon in California. Vernon, welcome to Mind Your Business. Hi, uh, good morning. Um, I, I had a question for your guest. I've been working on a project that deals with um, extra or excess capacity in the tour bus industry. 
And I wanted to find out, how did he know when to go from research to coding? Jeff, I guess the, the question is, you know, h- how much uh, do you need to know before you actually start building something? What, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, I, I think part of this came directly from my experience at Expedia and looking for that that marker of what I described earlier as kind of consumer viable fragmentation. It's what a, what a consumer fragmentation or a set of opportunities that when a consumer looks at it, they would think that's valuable to them, right? And, and, and you know, in different markets, there are different needs, right? In some cases, it's just discovery, and it's just discovery of that one option at one time when you need it. But in other markets, it's, it's really that, you know, hey, there are six to seven to nine to 15 ways to get around, um, and what's most useful for me at this exact moment in time? Again, knowing that no one provider in my marketplace is ubiquitous, is everywhere at all times. Um, or perceived to be everywhere at all times. Um, and so we basically did research from, I'd say, November of 2015 to February of 2016. And what we found as we looked into about 200 markets around North America and the world is we were finding 9 to 15 providers that were available through a smartphone for hailing through a smartphone and on and on the use case in every single market. And so, but when we looked more deeply, we uncovered a challenge. And that was most of these providers, the local ones in particular, are very small, and they don't have the engineering capability to build their own APIs, their own application programming interfaces for us to access their ride information. And so the first lines of code that we wrote starting in February of 2016 was to basically see, could we connect to their services without them having publicly available APIs to actually make the service appear on Mego and have the right level of quality, the right, uh, the right degree of information flowing in and out so that a consumer would look at it and say, oh, that's kind of about the same as what I'd expect from you know, anybody else. It's, it's not you know, horribly bad. Um, and so the first lines of code we wrote were basically proving to ourselves that that supply, which looked interesting to us and we thought would be interesting to consumers, was actually accessible in a, you know, in a, in a digital world uh, and, and that we could actually bring it on to Migo and make it interesting. Um, so that's, that, that, that was the, it was a forcing function, basically, for us. We saw the supply. We knew that consumers were interested in discovering and comparing. Um, and we had to know if we could actually access the supply and make it look good uh, when most of the technology companies behind them were not, you know, large and global and well-funded. Um, and so that for us was the, was the first line of code we wrote. Vernon, is that helpful? It, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it sounds like they're, they're almost looking to be a back end for, for a smaller provider. And that's what I was, that's what I was wondering, because that's the kind of uh, process that I was thinking about in regards to this, um, the true bus industry, but uh, I really appreciate that. And um, uh, let me ask one more question. Is it possible to get in touch with someone in your company, uh, you know, to bounce my deals off? Uh, sure. Yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd be fine. Just uh, reach out to info at getmego.com. It actually comes into three of us, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll route it. Info at getmego.com. Vernon, let me ask you, uh, is there a particular problem that you are researching uh, right now? What, what, what is holding you back from, uh, from starting to build that code? Well, you know, 
the issue with the tour bus industry is kind of multifaceted in regards to the ability to sell bus seats on empty tour buses that are moving around the country without being um, without being a charter. And so that that's that was one issue. And then the other issue was uh, just talking to enough um, tour bus operator owners to get them to understand what their if the solution is something that they would you know that they would value. So that's kind of where I was uh, uh, kind of stuck at. I, I've been working on it. I, I worked at Intel for a while and I actually did this project within Intel uh, as an intrapreneur. And so I've been working on this for a while, but um, that's kind of, I just, it, it, it was interesting the way that your, uh, your guest presented the information that he was presenting. Vernon, thank you very much for your phone call and, uh, and best of luck. Uh, let's, if you have a question, give us a call. Uh, we're at one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 You can call right now, but uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back in a moment for more with Jeff Warren. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about how he, uh, what he had to go through to raise money for his idea and some other aspects of building Mego. Um, I'm Lauren Feldman. My guest is Jeff Warren, CEO of Mego. We'll have more in just a minute. You're listening to Mind Your Business on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Mind Your Business with the Wharton Small Business Development Center. Here again is Lauren Feldman. Welcome back to Mind Your Business. I'm Lauren Feldman. I'm here with Jeff Warren, CEO of Mego, an app that lets you go to one place to assess all your transportation options, rideshare, bike, scooter, taxi, public transit. You can find Mego online at getmego.com. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Jeff, I think I read that you raised uh, $9 million um, to to get started funding uh, Migo. Is that correct? Yeah, we've actually raised a total of $11.4 million. But our last round, which we closed last summer, was $9 million. Yep. Got it. Uh, Did you consider trying to do it without raising money? Boy, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, I did for a little while, um, but in this case, the way that Mega started was um, I was kind of out uh, and about thinking about new things to do and 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 whatnot. After a long stint at uh, at Expedia, um, we had just had uh, our third child, my personal life, and uh, I wanted something where I wasn't going to be traveling quite as much as I was at Expedia, where I had a team and in Dallas, Texas, a team in Sydney, Australia, and a team in London, and a team in, in here in Seattle. Wow. Um, and uh, it just so happened that at that time, uh, a group called Idea Lab, led by Bill Gross, um, was out kind of pitching this idea around, uh, you know, disrupting the transportation market um, and kind of disrupting the disruptors. And so Bill and I were introduced um, and we kind of had a meeting of the minds and, and, and found a business model kind of between our own, between our own ideas um, that, uh, that I decided to begin doing research with. And so I actually started the company uh, with Bill working through this idea. And so I kind of started it with funding from that perspective because Idea Lab, of course, uh, is one of, the, you know, one of the top accelerators that's out there today, probably not as flashy as a Y Combinator. 
um, or some of the others, but but you know, kind of quietly pumping out companies in Pasadena, California, since 1996. Um, they're a great company to work with. So so I don't know that it, it crossed my mind that in this case that it, we'd start it would bootstrap it for a year and kind of see how it went. It all we always started it with uh, with a little bit of funding. So when I met you at South by Southwest, uh, you had just given a presentation as part of a pitch uh, competition, uh, and you mentioned to me that your uh, investor had been unable to make it to the pitch competition. Unfortunately, w- why was that? Yeah, so yes, one of our one of our most recent investors um, out of New York uh, who led our Series A. Um, I'm not going to name names, so, so I don't embarrass him. But uh, he was there and really enthusiastically trying to get to the pitch competition, and decided to uh, to jump on a scooter and get there so he could get get in uh, early, um, and ended up in the emergency room uh, with uh, with a number of contusions on his leg and a suspected concussion. I'm laughing about it now because everything ended. He's well. okay. He's fine, and yeah, everything everything is great. But it was it was just one of those one of those moments um, where, you know, you know that you fed someone's enthusiasm for multimodal transportation and here, uh, you know, he got to an accident. Um, <laughs> do you, do you know if he used Mego to uh, locate the scooter that he used? I, I, I will neither confirm nor deny that he used Mego to access the, uh, the scooter in question. Um, so I, I will say it, it became a bit of a buzz amongst, amongst his friends that like, you know, that was a story he'd used Mego and, uh, got on the scooter and immediately, you know, got into an accident. It didn't quite happen that way, but it, it uh, yeah, it was ironic to say the least. So it sounds like you had a very smooth process raising capital. It, it kind of, it, it was, you were actually connected before you started um, building the business, it, it sounds. Um, but you've had a more recent round. Were there any particularly tough questions? What what were investors or potential investors most concerned about as you went into this? Yeah, I, look, I can't say it was easy. Um, you know, starting it and building the, the seed technology to prove that A, the supply was present, and B, that we could access it and maintain a decent service level so that if people use services they don't know on Migo, you know, it actually uh, is a good experience. That that part was fairly easy. That was just me and Idealab and, and uh, you know, engineers in Pasadena and, and other engineers aligned with Idealab just kind of proving it out. Um, but even raising our first Series A, which was $1.7 million in uh, January of 2017, um, was quite difficult. You know, if you go to all the usual suspects in Silicon Valley, on Sand Hill Road, um, and, and around the country, there was a lot of disbelief in 2016 into early 2017 that this, you know, fragmentation of supply that these other providers, that micro mobility, that bikes and e-bikes, like why are people going to take these? Like there really was a lot of disbelief that anything in the market was going to matter other than the recent, you know, kind of tsunami of rideshare partners. Um, and in fact, there had been a couple companies in 2013. Oh, I want to. I'm, trying to make sure I'm getting the date right. It was either 2013 or 2015. I think it was the earlier of those dates. There are two, two companies called Red Ride and Corral Ride um, that tried to, to launch an app like Migo, uh, but all they had from a supply perspective, from a partner perspective at that time, was Uber, Lyft, and another company, which has since gone out of business, called Sidecar. And those companies ultimately failed because Uber wouldn't work with them uh, because you know Uber was uh, firmly committed to just building their own brand and having loyal customers only on their app. Lyft wouldn't work with them. 
Uh, and Sidecar, I think, was happy to work with them, but but wasn't really big enough in enough markets for it to matter. There just wasn't enough choice. Um, and both of those companies went out of business. Red Ride by just uh, shutting it down, and Corral Ride uh, actually pivoted to being a carpooling solution, and then Lyft bought them, uh, Aqua hired the founders um, into Lyft. And so, you know, can, trying to convince investors that the ecosystem had really changed, that what people could access on the ground through their smartphone and with that kind of use case had really changed. That, you know, and there were no scooters at this time, but there were bikes that, you know, people were actually looking at car share and bikes as fungible resources. Um, that was very, very difficult. Uh, and so we ended up finding um, three funds in particular that came together for our first round, uh, our Series A. One is a mobility only fund. They only invest in mobility startups called Via ID, based out of France. And then they've got a presence in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Um, uh, Wavemaker, which uh, is a great fund in L.A., but also has a very significant presence in, Europe, in Asia, in Singapore in particular, and is watching what was going on in, with micromobility and fragmentation of supply in Asia, and kind of applied those lessons to, to, uh, to the U.S. market and said, okay, this is possible. And then a, group, uh, a great group here in Seattle um, that really loves investing in Seattle startups, uh, and that's called Second Avenue. Um, and Second Avenue actually now came on the board. Um, and it's a great group, great group to work with. Uh, the managing director there is a guy named Nick Hanauer, who kind of quite famously is the guy who convinced Jeff Bezos to move to Seattle to start Amazon here. Um, and so, I, you know, I've got some great, great background there. But you know, going to kind of the usual suspects uh, on Sand Hill Road and, and around um, and around Silicon Valley, uh, it was not an easy process. Um, and then for our larger round. Uh, our $9 million round, which we just closed last summer, of course, the explosion of micromobility happened, right? And uh, suddenly there were scooters everywhere. Suddenly e-bikes were taking off. E-bike companies were growing and contracting, and there was all this fluidity in the market. And people were saying, were, were suddenly saying, oh, yeah, there are choices. This is amazing. Um, and, and, of course, the automotive OEMs are now getting much more serious about mobility as a service. And so for our Series A, we brought in a, a lead fund, um, that really has invested in travel and travel search. Uh, and then Hyundai, the third largest automotive manufacturer in the world, who you know is trialing different forms of mobility as a service all around the planet. And Enterprise, which is the largest, uh, of course, car rental agency, uh, private car rental agency in the world, um, and also is trialing different forms of mobility as a service uh, around the country. And so, you know, the, the number of folks who are kind of believing in this mobility as a service market is is increasing. Um, and we just happen to be well-positioned to, to, to bring them in. If you have a question about starting a business or raising capital, give us a call. We're at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Uh, I, I, I got to ask you, Jeff, I, I look at the, the scooter companies. I know that there are a couple that are worth uh, valued at a billion dollars. Do you think they have a viable business model? Um, I, so the answer is yes. Uh, but let me let me let me add the qualifiers. The answer is yes, but at what scale I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. Right? Um, scooters are amazing. They're they're a fun to use. They're super convenient. They take up much less real estate uh, on a sidewalk than a large electric bike. Um, you know, safety of course can be improved and needs to be improved. Um, and so, you know, scooters or some other form of portable transit at that scale, I think, has, has legs and has longevity. Now, where 
they will exist um, and how big they'll be in any one city. I think that remains to play out, right? And you've seen, you know, a massive footprint evolve in Santa Monica and then other parts of, of uh, L.A., you know. Well, we got a taste of it in Austin. Absolutely. You couldn't go, you know, three or four feet without running into 10 or 15 scooters. Uh, Almost literally running yeah. into. Yeah. And, and uh, Austin, you know, the, the accident of my investor aside, Austin painted um, quite a picture of kind of how scooters may need to evolve. I mean, they, you know, a couple scooters alone were taking up most of the bike lanes at any particular point in time. There isn't necessarily a developed etiquette or rules of the road uh, for scooters. Um, Lyft, if you if you notice, Lyft was actually trialing out these docking stations for scooters and places to kind of collect five to plus scooters um, in in a much more compact fashion. I think that's that was really helpful. That's a good innovation by uh, Lyft and their scooter business. Um, but yeah, scooters run amok are a terrible, non viable business model. Scooters done in conjunction with city planning and sidewalk planning and 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 uh, bike lane planning, I think absolutely is viable. And then the question of scale. I, I think I like your business model better. Um, t- t- tell me about that business model that, that you worked out, I gather, starting with Bill Gross and uh, Idealab. Um, I assume you, you take a cut for, on each transaction. Is there anything more to it than that? Yeah, we actually don't take a take a pure cut of the transaction. Um, we we operate in very much the same way that MetaSearch operates in the travel space, and that is we charge a marketing fee for connecting a consumer with a ride. Uh, it's a flat fee. Uh, it's different based on the type of mobility, but for taxis, CNCs, it's fifty cents. Um, and and then we charge an amount for the creation of a new customer account with uh, with a provider. So if we introduce them to a new customer. Um, and that customer then accesses that service and, and pays for a ride. Uh, we also collect a bounty on that. Uh, we do have one um, relationship that's evolving uh, in one market because we, we, we have a density of data that, that uh, can work here to look at demand patterns. Um, it's a provider that uh, just works in one mode of transport, and they're trying to understand demand patterns with consumers who seem to be open to a more multimodal behavior where they're trying you know, just about everything on a weekly basis. Um, and so we provide that data feed to them, uh, and that will eventually evolve, I think, into a revenue stream for us, that kind of, that kind of demand planning data. Um, no personally identifiable information, just literally like there are 10 people in this neighborhood you know, looking for this type of transportation at this time of day, and they're not finding it, maybe try it out. That kind of that kind of information, um, and I think that'll be a rich business for us. But we really have to scale up into the millions of users to to make that a real business. How far have you gotten in your marketing? Uh, so at the moment, we're we're both mostly running marketing tests. We've run about eighty five discrete tests across multiple channels, trying to find a good mix of uh, CPI uh, cost per install and CPA cost for someone actually taking the ride. Um, and we're basically optimizing for what we believe uh, a reasonable consumer will use Nego to access a reasonable number of rides annually. So our thought on a, on a user is that they could generate for us around 30 to $35 per year on an annual basis. And we're trying to, with our marketing test, determine if we can build a CPA, obviously somewhat below 30 to $35. And so far, uh, we've actually been pretty successful. But we've, we've held off on turning on the marketing gas. Um, until we launch our Android version uh, and and move off of our 
very functional and robust prototype platform, which we launched on in 2017, and moved to our really commercial and commercially scalable platform, which we actually put into public beta in about two weeks. Um, and that's when we'll start to turn up the marketing. But so far, we've just been testing. Can you give us a hint of uh, what types of marketing you found most effective? Um, Platforms or message? I'd hate to give it away to all our, to our competitors, but um, so so uh, it's so far. Uh, there's two things that seem to really work um, on the inorganic side, on the paid marketing side. Uh, it really is, Facebook's been our best platform by far, um, and you know I I have mixed feelings about that, but but at the same time, are you doing uh, lookalike audience? Yeah, we're using we're using lookalike audience targeting on Facebook, and and basically that allows us to micro-target at scale. Um, and really, when you're thinking about mobility, you you're really thinking about going into neighborhoods where you've got uh, lots of options and you've got people who exhibit certain behaviors. And so, uh, the Facebook uh, lookalike and custom audience development tool set really allows us to do that micro-targeting at scale, and, and it's been wonderful. The other form of marketing for us that's really worked well has been organic um, and offline, uh, and it's it's very targeted. It's very light. It's you know, what, is, what has that been? How, how has that worked? Yeah, it's mostly showing up where people are out of pattern. Uh, and I just use a term that probably isn't thought of as anything uh, in the space. So I'll explain it a little bit. Um, imagine you're going to a, a sporting event, right? You're you're off at um, you know a Jets game or something. And you walk out, and the first thing you see are 2,000 people standing over by a line, and they're all staring at their smartphone. Well, what are they doing? They're sitting there waiting for, like, one of the 70 cars that are in the area around <laughs> coming to pick them up. I, and, I've been there. Right. So, and so what we do is we basically, when people are, are out of pattern and, you know, in a horrible situation, we go and we talk to them. And uh, it's resulted in some of our best consumer acquisition and some of our best repeat customers. Because someone immediately look at me going, and know, they know in three seconds that there's so much else that's out there that even if we're not going to monetize it, we're showing them something they didn't expect. Um, and and so if we can try to capture uh, customers when they're kind of out of their pattern, they're out of their regular commute, they're they're um, and they're in an event where the congestion of demand makes you know any one service not the perfect service at that particular point in time. That's resulted in some some great growth for us. Um, is yeah, is that something that, that you can imagine scaling? Um, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the trick. We're trying to figure out how do we do that at scale because um, it's easy to do it in a couple of markets, but it's much more difficult to do at scale. So we are – I'll just say we're working on it. <laughs> um, th- this isn't your first startup, right? You've had uh, previous experience. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and was there anything that you learned in your previous experiences that were uh, that was helpful for you this time around? Yeah, so this is, uh, correct, my fifth startup. Um, my first startup, I was not a founder or co-founder. I was employee number 33. Uh, we grew uh, to about 200 employees and went public uh, in 1996, um, which was a great process for me to go through, but I was a you know recent college graduate, so I can't say I, I knew everything that was going on, and, and but uh, what know, type of business experience to go through. Uh, that was uh, the, the very sexy business of enterprise testing tools. So uh, testing tools that you would provide to a QA team at a large institution to regression test a new app that's coming out. This is all kind of pre-Y2K. 
So everyone was rebuilding software to move from mainframe systems to client server systems. So the automated testing tool business was actually a great business uh, back, at the, back in the day. Um, and it was a really interesting place for me to learn uh, because I started off um, doing database work and a lot of internal work, but very quickly got put into the field and was working with our customers to implement our software. And so I got, to, I got a crash course in how insurance companies think about software and finance companies think about software and entertainment companies think about software, you know, in the, in the space of two years. Um, and it was an amazing learning experience from that perspective. Um, but, yeah, we went public in 96. Uh, that company got acquired by a much larger software company called Rational in 1997. Rational is now part of IBM and has been since 2002. Um, I left in 98 and was invited by our CEO of that startup to join him as an analyst uh, at a venture fund in Boston. So I got another crash course in how to raise money or how people were raising money. I guess how to say no uh, to, to to people. That's one of the jobs of an analyst at a venture fund when you're dealing with you know 500 cases coming in every week. Um, but I got to live through the the growth, uh, the plateau, and the collapse of the internet bubble in you know, 99, 2000, 2001, really from the inside, from a perch uh, in Boston um, at this venture fund called Atlas, which is, is still still around. Um, but what I found out about myself in that experience was I really wanted to keep my hands dirty. When we had a problem with a portfolio company, I wanted to jump in and try to help fix it. I wanted to be part of a team that was you know, rebuilding the code or rebuilding the marketing positioning or you know, I just wanted to dive in and, and, and get my hands dirty. And, and you really just couldn't in a venture fund. Um, and I think that that came across. Uh, both is, you know, I think I got a little bit bored and a little frustrated uh, with being in the venture world, um, particularly at that level where the fund wasn't my business. I was, I was really just analyzing plans all day long and then meeting with portfolio companies uh, all day long and, and talking to new companies. I just, I realized I needed to be a maker. I needed to be in it. Um, so I left and started a company with, uh, with about five other people. We bootstrapped it for um, about 18 months and realized that, 2002 was a, a very difficult time to raise money for an enterprise software company. Uh, you know, at that that time, it just wasn't wasn't happening, even with uh, a team that had a great track record. Um, and so we wound that down, sold a little piece of it off. Part of it became a consulting company, and I uh, left and joined another startup as employee number six um, called Brandwise. And while Brandwise was kind of an enterprise software company, I was running the part of the business which was the mobile part, which was really building software for kind of consumer-grade people, consumer-oriented uh, users. Uh, and this was salespeople who would go out to, like, mom-and-pop shops and take orders. Um, and so you really had to build software that adhered to a lot of consumer principles. Super simple, uh, not a lot of, you know, extra steps. Because, you know, mobile devices at, at that time, uh, when I started, it was a Palm Pilot and a Cradle, right? And... Um, uh, you just couldn't build complex use cases with the software at that time and, and have them make any sense. And so uh, it was my first time both, A, working with mobile, and B, working with kind of consumer-style software. And I found out that I loved it. Um, but I also found out something else, and that is I had been in startups my whole life, or in venture, and I was feeling a bit lost. I was feeling like, okay, I've been thrown into a bunch of situations. I kind of make something up. I kind of go with it and see how it does. And then if it works, it works great. And if it doesn't work, then I, then I shift. Maybe there are deeper lessons for me to learn. You know, uh, having been through one startup, which was effectively 
uh, for all intents and purposes, a, a moonshot. Um, and then to go through two, which were okay, but struggling, um, I really felt like maybe there's a good time and a place for me to learn some deeper lessons. It sounds so, like you really had great uh, experiences combined with what you did at Expedia, just, just kind of perfect for what you're, what you're doing now. Uh, we're really short on time. I wanted to ask you uh, one more question, which is, if, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Kayak was sold to Priceline for uh, for a couple billion dollars. Is that correct? Yep, correct. Yeah. Is, yeah it, the, the, is that what you're hoping for here? Yeah, look, I think I think um, MetaSearch is, is uh, going to be alive and well in transportation. Um, you know, there are too many players doing too many, too many different types of transportation. Uh, and um, it's just a great opportunity for consumers to MetaSearch provides consumers just the best opportunity to find what's best for them in the moment. Um, so I think it's going to survive and do well. There are five players in the MetaSearch space and travel who have all either gone public or been acquired at, you know, over than over a billion dollars. Um, and so we certainly want to play in that, that particular space, that particular level. Jeff Warren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation. If you want to learn more about Jeff uh, and Migo, go to getmigo.com or at getmigo on Twitter. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but we're here live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. My thanks to audio and engineer Dion Simpkins and producer Michelle Stucker. If you liked what you heard here, you can find me on Twitter at Al Feldman. You can also check out the Oxford Morning Report, a daily newsletter for entrepreneurs. You can subscribe for free and get it by Googling Oxford Morning Report. Until next time, I'm Lauren Feldman, and you've been listening to Mind Your Business. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 